This is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Laird Superfood for sponsoring this episode. My nutrition has changed a lot over the last year since I decided to look after myself a little bit more, not just for me, but my family too. One constant though is my coffee, and you'll know I'm a big coffee lover. It's not just part of my morning, but my daily routine. Laird Superfood and their creamers have been a bit of a game changer for me and taking my coffee game to a whole new level. It's the perfect way to not only fuel your morning, but your whole day with organic, natural, plant-based ingredients. And for me, as a diabetic, there is no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. There's also a huge variety of snacks, baking mixes and protein options for you to try, all made with plant-based ingredients to keep you charged for whatever life takes you. Are you ready to feel more energised, focused and supported? Go to lairdsuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunset to sunrise. Use promo code THATUFO at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. It's been a while since i done a roundtable and I thought no better way to kick off March than be lazy and invite some other people on to do the talking for me. So joining me to discuss a busy few months that I've kicked off 2023 to give him a proper introduction, which is rare, the co-founder of UAP Media UK, the co-founder of 33 Ounce Media, 33 that's weird, I've never said it out loud before. Um, 33 Ounce Media and part of the Phenomenology team soon to begin filming their second season out in Colombia. You will almost definitely know him from the breakdowns on this podcast, Daniel Zetterstrom or Dan. Hi, Dan. Because you said Daniel, I feel like I'm in trouble now. Yeah, do, the, the weirdest part was saying 33 Ounce Media out loud. <laughs> I just, I just, it doesn't doesn't sit with sit right with me. I'm so used to reading it. Um, we, but yeah, I think we, we we tend to just say like 33 ounce, like we should. Yeah, it, yeah, 30, there you go. There's a lot of implications that come with that, so you know. Yeah, there is, there is. We'll leave that one there. Um, also, we have the host and creator of the wonderful Somewhere in the Skies podcast. He asked me to say that. He is an author, researcher, presenter, and also part of the UAP Media UK team. Ryan Sprague. Ryan, welcome to the pod. Thanks, man. I'm uh, cleanly shaven, looking like a grown baby, and mm. uh, this is as casual as I get, so this is going to be fun, man. Just you sitting know, back and letting you guys do all the work. I never picked up you had shaved. I just thought you looked ill, so for those on <laughs> YouTube that will be able to see Ryan, yeah, he's uh, he's just shaved. And <laughs> Speaking of shaved, uh, finally, one of the cabbies over at Calling All Beings and one half of the spectacular Liminal Frames, he is... Uh, I, I know you affectionately as a waif soul because that was how I originally saw your, your content on Twitter. And it is Nathan. Nathan, welcome back. Thank you, Andy. I'll always have affection for you as well. Good to be here. Thanks. It's rare I get it in my life at this age. So thank you all for joining me. Um, this particular show, Peek Behind the Actors Curtain here, has changed a few times as I had a few different ideas what I wanted to talk about. But given the listener response on uh, Patreon, Discord, YouTube and emails, I've decided just to kind of go a bit with the flow here and uh, go with your talking points to put out to the guys and myself. Uh, so let's jump straight in. Uh, there's been a lot happening. It's been a busy 2023 so far. Um, Layla on emails, very good song by Eric Clapton as well. Um, Leslie Keane's series UFOs Investigating the Unknown was fantastic, she says. It was perfect for a few people or for new people to the subject and had enough in it to keep folks with a long-standing interest engrossed. What's next though in terms of a series that really pushes the envelope? As amazing as this series was, it seems like it's five episodes and done. 
till the next one like this rolls along. I want to see more follow-up, things to be built on. Is that unfair? I'll come to you first, Dan. And I think what she's getting at, thank you for that, Leila, is, for example, unidentified, a really good introduction to the UFO topic. It introduced you to people like Leila Zondo, Sean Cahill, you know, Ryan Graves, uh, and others that are now big parts of it. But then a couple of years later, another documentary series drops, which is a fantastic introduction to the UFO topic. Doesn't get built on. Now we have Leslie Kane's series. Fantastic introduction to the UFO topic. Is it going to get built on or is this just another placeholder until the next one comes along? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. We Over the past few years, we seem to have gone from <clears throat> having these kind of low low bar, low production quality documentaries to having these kind of 60 minutes-esque pieces of media that are really concise and just really, really well made. And in terms of them being built on, the each one kind of brings something something new. Like Leslie Keen series has uh, Helene Cooper, who we've never heard talk before, and, and a few other characters kind of who, who open up about certain things. So it's getting getting more in depth and, and establishing the, the players in the space and, and their credentials in, in a more in-depth, concise way as we go. You know, the Leslie Keen thing is five episodes, Unidentified was two seasons. So, you know, it's kind of shrinking down and kind of getting to the point of it quicker for people. But just like the Phenomenon movie, it gets to a point where it has to kind of go to be continued. And yeah. that's not, we, we haven't got past that yet. And I think the reason is, is just because enough stuff hasn't happened. You know, we're, we're getting stuff happening almost every week now. And if they were to add an episode, maybe they, they could maybe like fill mm -hmm. the last year. But again, you'd hit that to be continued kind of space. So I'm sure once we get hearings, once we kind of get, you know, another year, maybe down the road, we'll start seeing maybe a follow-up from James Fox there on the phenomenon, just kind of updating people on what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and yeah, kind of scratching that to be continued itch, I would say. Ryan, I'll come to you next on that same question, but also add, as someone who creates content themselves, right, in different ways, for TV, for podcasts, books, right, you, you've got it all covered, you know, dick. Um, <laughs> do, you think, do you think the mainstream audience is there? for that continued series to be made like there's there's that like dan says it's these great series well put together introduces the topic to to two million viewers three million viewers is there enough there forgetting the ufo twitter community for example which is you know a few thousand and the reddit community which is a few thousand that's not enough to justify another full tv series is it do you think there's enough folks out there to consume that type of media yeah, good question. I mean, you know, the normal, I don't want to say normal, but like the everyday person who doesn't look into this stuff like we all do, um, you know, even now when they find out what I do in terms of um, producing UFO content or research and whatnot, uh, if I just say Tic Tac UFO, I'd say probably like 95% of them know what I'm talking about now. And that's people who've never looked into UFOs and and stuff like that. And they'll just be like, oh, oh, yeah, well, that was like on the east or on the West Coast. Right. Um, so I think we are now at a point where most of the mainstream is aware of a lot of um, the buzzwords that kind of fly around mainstream media with a lot of this. But they don't know the nitty gritty. They don't know who Commander Fravor is. They don't know who um, Ryan Graves is or what Go Fast is. So I think. Like Dan said, we're at that point now where all these kind of mainstream places are trying to catch up 
to people like uh, uh, Tom DeLonge and Unidentified or uh, even the stuff that James Fox did. That's why we're now seeing 60 Minutes and, and all these mainstream sort of outlets um, to try to do their own version of mm. the Cliff Notes version of a lot of this. Uh, so, yeah, I think we are at a point where we can kind of move on. Uh, but again, that's coming from somebody who thinks, breathes, lives, and sleeps this stuff. So maybe every single one of these things has some sort of value. And 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 I think they do. You know, if one new person is now learning about everything that's been going on since 2017, uh, that's awesome. And to kind of play off of what Dan said, I know for a fact that people like James Fox are trying to do that, trying to move this conversation forward instead of just looking at the Tic Tac again and this and that. Um, I talked to James actually yesterday about this, and he's currently working on something that is kind of a follow-up to everything that's been going on post-2017. You know, without giving specifics, that's not, I'm not, I'm in no place to do that. But I do know that he, he's kind of at that point too, as a filmmaker where he's like, okay, we get it. We know kind of the new ufology post-2017. Now what? Like, where is this all heading? So, yeah, I'm excited to see what comes and kind of the ripple effect of all of this. Again, if one filmmaker saw that Leslie Kane series and is now inspired to continue looking into that, awesome. Um, Same with, like, the work of Jeremy Corbell. If if one person now learns about Bob Lazar or... um, you know, about the, the Mosul orb, whatever, whatever yeah. Corbell's bringing forward, uh, that can have a ripple effect for more people to now come forward and continue that story in the way they see, uh, they see fit, I guess. Yeah. And, and Nathan, just your thoughts on, on the same thing. Like Dan and I have spoken on the podcast before about if there's a piece of evidence, and I think sometimes this is the issue, people expect a new series to bring out a new video, you know, the new Tic Tac, the new Go Fast, the new Gimbal. That's not going to happen in a documentary that takes a year to produce. There's not going to be that holding of a piece of footage that's that, that incredible, you know, the black triangle photograph that's all kind of fabled and talked about. That's not going to appear in a documentary for the first time because that, that goes on the news. Dan, you and I have talked about that many times before. Like that that comes out in a big way on socials. That That's high noon material you know, for a Jeremy Corbell, as we would say. So are, are the expectations of some of these documentaries and what they can produce unrealistic? It depends on the audience. So I think a lot of this is related to the platform. I think that most people are hungry for this topic. And I, I say that because you can look at the big articles we're all familiar with that have been published on the New York Times. So if you look at their viewer counts, the reading counts on those articles, they're astronomical. So the appetite, the interest is there. It's where is where is the message being given? What platform is the message being given on? That's what is important, I think, in human society because we're very uh, we look to each other in the room for permission to be interested. And when it's on a certain platform, it then gives us permission to be outwardly interested in the topic. And so what we've seen over the last several years is a movement of this topic from fringe circles, inner circles, tiny circles into outer circles of, of 
a greater acceptability, you know, bigger platforms, bigger productions, as Dan and, uh, and Ryan pointed out, the quality of these productions have gotten better over time. So that is continuing to happen. As that happens, at least I think this, an inflection point will occur where it's on the right platform in the right places for enough people to see it and say, oh, wait, I can, you mean I can take this seriously now? I've always been interested, but you're telling me I can take it seriously and, that, and therefore we all can take it seriously. That's what I think I'm looking for. And I feel like with Leslie's show, it is moving in that direction. As someone who makes a podcast, I, I won't complain because anything that comes out like this, you see a trickle down to to listeners, viewers, opportunities for people, artists, you know, and it, it means that our other podcasts pop up, series like Dan Phenomenology become, you know, viable and they can be made and people have an interest in it. And I, I don't see that as a bad thing. And maybe it's a little bit like expecting every Marvel movie to be an Avengers film as opposed to getting the big Avengers movie and then seven movies after that, which are smaller, but kind of tell the individual stories. But that's where a James Fox leaves and goes and does, you know, a smaller Virginia piece, which has more of a niche audience. He goes on to Ryan's podcast. He he writes a book that Dan commissions the cover of. And, you know, different people get different aspects of that. And eventually it comes back to Phenomenology too where that big audience can jump on board again and everyone else has benefited from those kind of smaller conversations roundabout. So I, I just don't know if we're going to see, I would like to see people like Leslie follow up with a bigger series again, but that's down to the networks to kind of pick up that kind of stuff and run with it. And timing can always be a big thing as well, can't it? Last year, CNN, not was it CNN, done the HBO Max, the J.J. Abrams series that ended up a little yeah, bit right. of a damp squib, I think it was fair to say, because it started well and then went right off the... The cliff in terms of credibility, I think, was the the common consensus. So, interested to kind of see where that goes. But yeah, it's 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 one for for the future. And we're going to see more documentaries. There's always going to be them. You know, going back to we have talked about the days of video stores having you know the alien autopsy videos or the same Dan when we talked about UFO sightings. You'd go in and see like the top fifty UFO sightings now caught on tape with never before seen footage and all that stuff kind of happens just in a much much nicer way now. So. Um, Lots to come from that space still, but yeah, I agree. It was a, a good series. I've not seen the full thing yet, um, but what I have seen looks good. It's got the right players, the right tone. I, I just would love to see more, that kind of next step on there. Um, following on from that, something that's been kind of part of the news cycle recently, Tom, I don't think that Tom DeLong um, could have been, uh, but I don't think so. Are we really believing that those three objects that were shot down by the US jets were all balloons? Something about all of this just doesn't sit right. This has obviously been a big talking point for, for many, many weeks now. Um, it got to the point where it looks like hobby balloons were being blamed or, you know, cited as the reason for these things being shot down. I've had some listeners send me some pictures of various different arts and craft pieces that are being shown. And it does seem a little bit like we're going back to the, the original Roswell photos with the Jesse Marcel, you know, with the, the wooden, the, the foil in the wood going, ah, oh, look, this is what we found. Is it just we're conditioned to the conspiracy side of things with this topic? Or was it a case of, no, no, these were three balloons being shot down? Um, Ryan, I'll come at you first on this one. What are your thoughts on how this story's kind of played out? Yeah, I mean, I change my mind every day, and it's frustrating. I, I'm sick of it. I, I, if, I, I, if I hear the word balloon now, like I immediately run away. It, it makes me feel nauseous. However, um, every conversation had on this uh, and every outlet that covers it 
um, I learn a little bit more uh, technically about like what these things could be, the aircraft in which uh, tracked them, um, possibly captured photo or video, and eventually shot them down. You know, specifically with Tim McMillan at the debrief, I learned a lot from an article he released about this recently. And I'm kind of right now at a point where uh, I don't think any of these were hobby balloons. I, I don't. Um, that's not to say I think they're extraterrestrial craft either. Um, I do believe that almost every single one of these things shot down were some sort of surveillance equipment. I mean, you, you don't just go uh, identify a hobby balloon and shoot it down. It just doesn't seem, it, it just seems illogical to me at this point. And, you know, recently speaking with a fighter pilot on, on the show, uh, they specifically said they know exactly what they are. They would not. And she said this, ha having done things like this, yeah. shot things down. She said they would not shoot it down if they didn't have a positive identification of what it was. Just know that. So I don't think it's a matter of uh, we, we're, we're very unclear on what it was, but we shot it down and now they're not going to recover the debris. Like we all know this at this point, this story's ad nauseum. Um, but I'm at the point right now where now I believe that it all it's all political. It's all geopolitical. It's all sort of surveillance uh, equipment of some kind. And uh, that's where I land right now. Ask me tomorrow. I'm probably going to go back to it was a Boy Scout troop and it was a weather balloon. I don't know, dude. It's so dizzying and I'm kind of over it. Um, but at the same time, like as UFO researchers, we have to continue to chase this story. Yeah. Because it does unwittingly involve us all in some way, shape or form. Like people come to us and want to know what's going on. And uh, I wish we had answers for them. Um, but we're not getting that the transparency to give anyone answers. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with all, with all of this. I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. I've had my Paperlike on the iPad now for a few months and wonder already how I ever done without it. One of the biggest differences for me is how much better the iPad screen looks. The reflection without the Paperlike on long train journeys or in the office was pretty bad. But now watching movies and TV shows is a far more pleasant experience. There just isn't that shine bouncing off the screen. Taking notes and writing podcast shows is also transformed. As it feels like it says, I am writing onto paper thanks to the nano dot technology tiny micro beads designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the apple pencil across the screen perfect for designing your next hobby balloon to be shot down by the u.s military i kid paperlike is perfect for anyone who owns an ipad and an apple pencil it's a must have they really should put it in with ipads i'd love to see them get that kind of deal you do get a set of two when you buy it so you always have the spare it's genuinely made me use my ipad more than i did before so it's given my existing technology a brand new lease of life to pick up your paperlike head over to paperlike.com forward slash that ufo click buy paperlike and select your ipad size so if you're ready to do more with your ipad head over to paperlike.com forward slash that ufo to get started I, i'm with you on that you can land on an opinion and i've said enough times to dan on this that i think you know x is the reasonable outcome for this piece of footage or this video or this story but if things come to light where that changes for good or for bad then you have to roll with it and you have to have that kind of fluid opinion in this topic and i think that's where you get a lot of the arguments on social media don't you where people are so hard and fast on one thing that they don't allow the rest of the evidence, whether it means it debunks something for them or not, 
to kind of to kind of get in the way. Nathan, how have you kind of followed this story, and where are you kind of sitting with it? I, uh, I I empathize a lot with what Ryan said in terms of the head spinning nature of the whole saga. It's uh, it's it's exhausting to kind of think about the different. Uh, angles of, of consideration here. I, you know, I tend to look at this though from a big picture standpoint, and and what this does to our collective uh, sort of thinking, our consciousness related to uh, what the U.S. can do or does do in in, in its skies. Um, the fact that it occurred so recently uh, in proximity to that balloon incident, the large Chinese balloon is perplexing. The fact that they haven't released any footage whatsoever of this perplexing. The hobbyist balloon, uh, you know, example, to me doesn't really ring very true because if if it were like a scientific uh, balloon or a hobby balloon, wouldn't one of those groups already claim that it was theirs? Uh, Wouldn't one of those groups already come forward and say, yeah, that you know, we we lost it. We had GPS on it. They all use GPS for those things and it went you know, fell into the ocean or whatever this, this time of that, you know, so we've heard none of that. We've not heard the government really point to that either, you know, Oh, Hey, we found it. It, it was in fact a high balloon and here's the group that was using it. So, yeah. so it's a little bit strange. Um, you couple that with comments like from Marco Rubio, you know, using the word advanced objects, uh, in a comment recently, uh, which I think is pretty eyebrow raising. Um, you know, all that said, to me, it's it's part. There's a kind of uh, acclimatization that, that that is happening, in my opinion. Um, I don't know how well it's orchestrated. I don't know how coordinated it is. Um, it could be uh, pretty loosely coordinated, or maybe not at all. But I think the overarching effect is getting people thinking about what is in the sky, um, what we do with objects in the sky. And that then lays the groundwork for uh, a variety of things in the future that may take place. So it, it, one, it, it kind of, it, you want the public to think that the government, the U.S. government has control over its airspace, right? So, so being able to identify these things and take them out of consideration as a threat to air safety is a great thing for the public to know. Oh, our government's got the skies under control. I can get on the plane and go visit my grandma. And I'm not going to have to worry about something that we're going to run into that's the kind of narrative that that you want to see, but we don't have the complete story. So it, it what I'm looking for now is what what is the follow up to that? You know, so I, I, I believe there are stories in the works, and and the and the, the best stories take time. You know, we all know this. It's not that you can just write an article in a day uh, that that really digs into the deep aspects of what went on with with these with these incursions and, and encounters. So there are stories in the works that are going to, in my opinion, uh, reveal greater detail about what happened here. And and those will be really interesting. Um, I don't think necessarily that we're going to see like we shot down some sort of, you know, alien craft or whatnot. But I think it's a it's a more complicated story than just additional balloons, hobbyist balloons, you know, scientific private group balloons, that, that, that kind of thing. I think it's more it's more complicated and it relates to the overall unfolding as, a, as a, what I kind of pointed to earlier, the unfolding of this topic more broadly uh, in the public awareness. Dan, I've seen seen both those arguments kind of online or points that Nathan's made that one, this is the US government trying to wrestle back control of the UFO narrative and put the toothpaste back in the tube by going, look, it's all balloons, it's all misidentifications, you know, we're, we're in charge of this and maybe things will go away. But also, I've, I've seen many people say that this is just the beginning of in a few months' time, does something else get picked up that they turn around and say, actually, this isn't like what we shot down before. 
we lost something. And then a few months after that, oh, we've tracked something again, but something shot off into orbit and we've lost it. And is it a way of that potential soft disclosure happening that they start to admit there's something else out there? Where where are you sitting with all of that just now? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I think the first thing to say is that the, de- the debris wasn't able to be recovered because we all know Lockheed got there first, right? They, they privately kind of scooped that up. I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, we, we had a number of different objects there supposedly found because uh, NORAD opened up their filters, which just means they were looking at things outside of what they'd already identified the fingerprints of. And they found a whole bunch of other things out there. For me, there are, there are kind of a few possibilities here. Either the US is being genuine and they, you know, vaporized these objects and they were small and, you know, the debris kind of flew into the wind and that's that. Um, or they recovered these objects and whether it's anomalous or related to spy activities, um, there's some intelligence value there. So they don't want to kind of show their hand in the same way as they, they didn't show their hand in terms of saying, hey, these are the shapes of all the UAP in these range fowler reports that we get. Uh, you know, that was all classified. We know that. Um, and there'll be a reason that was classified. You know, they, it might be a case of not letting China know that we know that they know that we, you know, those kind of, like you say, political games, right? Or the U.S. shot down some object that, you know, belonged to the CIA or something like that. And they, they're yeah. just trying to cover up a whole bunch of humiliation and, and just being inept. Um, you, you know, it's always funny with these things because you have the two extremes that either the government is playing 4D chess and is brilliant and covering everything up, or they're completely terrible at what they do. And there are just humans behind the wheel and, you know, they're flawed. Uh, so both of those can't be true. You know, it, it's probably somewhere in the middle is a lot of things. It's been really interesting seeing the kind of the myth build, though, and people taking these different portions of the story and running with them, uh, probably very similar to what happened back during Roswell, uh, where, you know, the the lie supposedly travels around the world before the truth can get its pants on. That's the saying. So we're essentially seeing a, a modern day UFO myth being built, no matter which way we look at it. But the important thing is that these objects allow us to to kind of clear up the data pile and to better define what it is that all of us here today are, are interested in. Um, there's huge interest due to this being covered more, which just leads to more opportunities for series and films like we were just talking about, uh, because people are going to be looking for this really concise, good information. Uh, the, the whole Pico balloon thing is really strange. Uh, the North Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, which sounds like a fun club, uh, that's a mouthful, uh, Nib, we'll just say, their website's actually gone down now. Uh, the the publication that said that they were responsible and it was one of their balloons has a number of kind of DOD connections that a few people have pointed out are quite shady. Uh, and now their website is down. So obviously that's sending everyone's conspiracy flags up, but it could just be that they know that they will be fined for those Sidewinder missiles. They'll have to pay the bill for all of those operations. And so they're like, crap, take the website down. Let's just, it wasn't us. We haven't done anything. <laughs> What's a balloon, you know? Well, let's just pretend. Um, so that's really interesting. But as Nathan and Ryan kind of both touched on, we have to be open to learning and to having our ideas challenged because daily there are new things that just make you kind of wonder, you know, what direction this is going in. We can all agree that the, the government is just oozing confusion in its messages. Uh, it raises questions. This whole situation raises questions about uh, readiness and response to, to potential threats from anything in the airspace that they don't know what it is. That led to Biden kind of declaring that there's going to be a, an interagency UAP task force. 
which is amazing because that's what we wanted this whole time. You know, it's basically saying, look, Arrow isn't fit for purpose. We need something better to be looking at all of these things and, and giving them out to the correct departments. So the people that look at drone threats can identify those threats and deal with them. But that does leave that nice, tidy pile of anomalous data for us that is what we're interested in. Something curious, uh, just to kind of finish off, is that NASA's study, they have been quietly updating their page as they've gone along. They, they haven't updated it with a lot. But when they announced their study, their website said that they were looking at unidentified aerial phenomena. Now, after this whole debacle, uh, they've actually changed that definition to unidentified anomalous phenomena. So even though you know, the news has kind of broadened out this scope to kind of be like, oh, UAP of balloons, NASA are kind of going, actually, no, we're going to include this anomalous kind of term because it kind of pushes the balloons out of the way then. That's not what we're interested in, you know? They, they clearly want to learn something and they, they want to use their scientific instruments to, to help kind of demystify this whole, this whole thing. I just hope at the end of the day, the the balloon club aren't too deflated. I can't even say that with a straight face. Um, sorry, I was sitting on that for about three minutes. There. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> tell. Yeah, 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 I just I had to do it. Um, but maybe, no, maybe it's... that's maybe that's why the sidewinder missed. You know, they popped it and it was doing the kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I made my first ever TikTok video, and it was the the up video of the the, the house and up going up with the balloons, and then the yeah the Chinese balloon being great. shot down. Listen, let's uh, open up our own radar and move from nuts and bolts into a little bit more of the spiritual side of things in the UFO topic. So Chris Bledsoe, Chris Bledsoe Senior, his book UFO of God released a couple of weeks earlier and is pretty big news in the UFO world right now. Uh, so we'll get some thoughts on that. Uh, this was from Well Behaved Dogs on YouTube uh, and basically asked, uh, he or she said, I would like to hear more discussion regarding the Bledsoe family and Chris Bledsoe's huge amount of uploaded videos of orbs on Instagram. Nathan, come to you first on that. I don't know if you've even managed to pick up the book yet. I'm just starting to read it in preparation for Chris Bledsoe coming on the podcast next week or so. Uh, what have your thoughts been? Oh, that's great. I'm glad you're getting a chance to talk to him. Yeah, I did pick it up. I've, I've started. I haven't finished it. Of course, I'm familiar with a lot of the, the stories from Chris Bledsoe, having heard him speak many times. Um, I'm familiar with uh, kind of many of the events of, of the last year um, and some of the anecdotes from the story as well that I'd heard about uh, through some other channels. Um, it, you know, it's, I'm glad that it's out there. I'm glad that he's telling his story. I think we can't separate the uh, the you know the the Chris Bledsoe from the experience, right? So that's one of the challenges with, and all of us have talked to experiencers. That's one of the challenges of trying to gain insight from what people are experiencing because it is so in, uh, entwined with who they are, um, what they bring, the context that they bring, their interpretive framework for the experience. Um, it's difficult to to kind of take that out. Uh, you know, Jacques Vallée has done a good job, I think, over time of looking at. Uh, what is actually happening and trying to separate the, you know, the detail from the interpretation. Um, and that, that's something that I would encourage, encourage readers to do of Chris's story, you know, look at what he's experiencing. Um, how can you uh, sort of the, the best that you can take out the experience, the detail from that and separate that from the interpretation of it. Um, we're, we're still going to have to make an interpretation. Let's, let's be clear. We can't not do that. But I think we want to make sure we're not just taking at face value whatever interpretation uh, Chris Bledsoe may be bringing to the experience. Now he's closest to it, and I respect his interpretation. Uh, he's you know he's living it out. He's he's experiencing that. 
And I think we need to take it seriously, what he is willing to share with us about those experiences, how it has impacted him and his family personally, and what he thinks it means for the world. Um, I, you know, there are some big things there that I don't think we can ignore. And, and also there are things about his experience that are in parallel to many of the experiences that we've all heard. Uh, that you know the world is in uh, sort of a, a kind of state of peril in a way that there is danger that, that there there is there uh, there are some beings that are trying to help us you know in Chris's case the lady trying to help him uh, there are people whose lives are upended because of these encounters uh, and then the last thing that I think is really key to Chris's story maybe more so than many others is the degree of official interest in what took place. Um, that to me gives it a ton of credibility that there were so many different agencies involved uh, both then and I think continued to be involved with what Chris is experiencing and trying to understand uh, what is taking place with Chris Bledsoe personally and at, at his property. Uh, what can we learn from that? Because it, 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 as we all know, it's difficult to pin the phenomena down into a laboratory setting. We yeah. really have to go where it's happening. So we're going to go to places like Skinwalker Ranch. We're going to go to places like Chris Bledsoe's house, trying to figure out what's taking place because things seem to happen there. We have a lot of documented examples of that, both uh, not just from his you know, or videos, which I know some people can be very frustrated with, but people who have been with him and have seen things happen. I know people who have had that experience and it's hard to discount that. And I think that to me is what uh, it really does kind of move things forward. I, I, I'm, I don't know about you guys. I'm at, I'm at the place now where I don't need another video. Like the videos are actually like, I almost kind of don't even want to watch videos anymore because to me, they, they're just their distraction. But when someone tells me that they've had an experience and I trust that person, I take that very, very seriously. Um, and I think that that's what's happening here with, with Chris. It's kind of giving, again, I'm going to come back to kind of my bigger perspective. Perspective. It's giving people permission to come forward with what they are experiencing and, and say, you know, this did, this also happened to me and I don't understand it. And here's a person who was brave enough to, you know, publish their, their story and people take him seriously. Well, maybe people will take me seriously. The more Chris Bledsoe's we have, the better off we are. Dan, we've talked about the, the Bledsoe story publicly and privately a few different times, haven't we? Um, and, and echo some of the, the thoughts of, of Nathan there. On the, the aspect of the question from Well-Behaved Dogs on the uploaded videos of orbs, you've got far more of a deep interest and understanding of light phenomena and, and you know, ball, ball lightning orb type objects than I do. What, what are your thoughts then on the Bledsoe story and I'll just be really honest, and I'll say this to Chris, that some of the videos that I see uploaded, not to take away from what he may be experiencing, like Nathan says, don't look anything dissimilar to satellites to me. And I think I said something very similar to Ryan when I spoke to Ryan Bledsoe as well, that it can be hard with a camera phone at, you know, several thousand feet away to, to differentiate that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really interesting seeing Ryan come into the conversation for that reason, because until that point, it was kind of a single source story, right? And those were yep. thrown into Route 101 by Sean KL. So uh, yeah, it's it's nice kind of getting that, the, the family expanding on it. And on Ryan's podcast, he's had on like his sister, the other brother, and they've all talked about these anomalous experiences throughout their lives. So it's very clear that something is happening. What that something is, is what's up for debate. 
there's clearly a lot of IC involvement. You know, we have people like Tim Taylor, um, yeah. you know, go in and interacting with them. Um, you know, Lou Elizondo and Tom DeLong went to meet Chris to retrieve some material from them. Um, so there's, to use that phrase that a lot of people kind of hate, there's a there there. Mm -hmm. Now, what that there is, is, is the big question. Um, the whole thing with the lady is really curious. That just makes me think of all the Marian apparitions that have happened over all the years that the Catholic church has, you know, kind of signed off and authenticated a lot of them and their experiences, just like Chris's, where you have a lady who appears that seems to communicate a, a warning to humankind and, you know, will visit them again. And, and every time the, the lady appears, she seems to ask the person to bring more and more people to her to kind of communicate this. Now that's really interesting, not just from the lens of, of UFO, but also from the lens of thinking of things like Project Bluebeam, where supposedly uh, technology would be used to show people their specific religious figures that would mean something to them to get them to act in the world in a certain way. Um, this you know, fits the bill, not saying that that's where it is, but you know, I see involvement, a little government technology. They, they could be someone messing with Chris here. But there's clearly an inciting incident that Chris had um, that seems to come from that. He, he hit that kind of really low point, you know, with his Crohn's disease. He thought yeah. that was it. And then, then this lady appeared to him and he had this UFO encounter, which kind of runs through a lot of different experiences. Um, the cover is really interesting to me. Uh, it's Salvador Monday. Uh, which is a, a lost Da Vinci painting, supposedly. And the interesting thing about that cover and that painting is that painting has never been authenticated as a real Da Vinci. It's a bunch of different people feeding into each other's myths and pulling the wall over each other's eyes. And I wonder if that cover is kind of a, a little clue as to what's going on. Not necessarily that Chris would know about it, you know, if, if someone is kind of playing with him in that way. But I'd be curious to talk to him about that and to ask him about that. Yeah, the fair point. Makes me think of like the the phrase phenomenology, where we all kind of, depending on our upbringings, depending on where we live, depending on the friends we have and the people around us, we all see the world through a different lens. And it's very clear that, that Chris's lens is a religious lens, and that's what's important to him. And so that kind of gets this experience is defined in that way. Uh, and not everyone's kind of into into that angle. You know, there's that famous quote from Star Wars, where Star Trek even, where, where Shatner says to a being uh, that purports to be God, what does God need with a spaceship? Uh, which is, you know, bang on, God would need a spaceship. So it, it makes you wonder. The second that cognitive manipulation comes into the picture, which supposedly these things can do, all better off. You can present as you want to present. You can make people see what you want them to see, think what they want them to think. And, and so... It's important, like Nathan said, to, to have these experiences shared so we can all kind of go, you know what, none of us understand this. None of us know what this is. The more data we have, the better, and we can start painting a picture, even if it's a picture of being manipulated by something. What I love about Chris's story is the human element and how much it's changed him, because that's something that we, we probably will hear more about going forward, but films like Witness of Another World really lean into that. Um, and it changes people's lives and not always for better either. You know, people don't ask for this stuff and yet here it is upending their life and making them lose friends and loved ones and, you know, just being alone. And it's, it's really strange that that happens in terms of the light phenomena. Uh, over the years, I've been saving so much from Ryan and Chris that they've posted. 
and I'd agree, like a lot of them, you know, some they, they look like just satellites coming over the horizon and things like that. But then the curious part of it is that in some close-ups, for example, they, there's one picture I have that Ryan said, oh, this was a, a dog, a spirit of a dog that's kind of coming back and these orbs are actually uh, kind of kind of like craft that the, the souls can be in mm -hmm. to express themselves here. And in the orb, you can actually see a, a dog face. And I'm not saying, you know, it might be pareidolia. Uh, you know, people just see what is suggested is there, like the, the blue, dress, blue dress and, you know, the, the monkey with a basketball kind of thing. Yep. Um, but it, it's, it's a question mark, right? Like none of us can tell Chris that he's making this up. None of us can tell Chris exactly what this is. It's another data point, And it's really important to just hold it lightly and take it seriously. I'd like to thank User Interviews for sponsoring this episode. When I first started promoting User Interviews a few months ago, I had a wonderful response from many of you out there who got on board early and earned some extra dollars at what's during what's a tough financial time. User Interviews connects researchers with real people like you, quality participants who earn money for their feedback on real products. Right now, there's a high demand for software developers and engineers to give feedback on products being created for developers. It's free to sign up. In less than five of our Earth Minutes, you can apply for your first study. Most studies are less than an hour and pay over $60. Some studies pay several hundred dollars for a one-on-one -on -one interview. You get to share your opinion on top brands such as Adobe, Spotify, Intuit, Amazon, and many more. I've even signed up myself, and the process was very quick. If you're ready to earn extra income from sharing your expert opinion, head over to userinterviews.com slash hello to sign up and participate today. Well, no one knows better about the human experience of the UFO topic than Ryan. You wrote a whole book on it, didn't you? And your, your presentation on it, I've seen a few times as well. The... The experience is is well known. I think for me, like I say, I, and I was very honest with Dan, and I've said on the podcast before, a lot of the orb stuff I struggle to get on board with because so much of it does just look like lights at a distance. Uh, and I'll, like Nathan said, though, I'm very happy to take people's testimony at face value, which I think is fair. But the amount of interaction with intelligence community officials, you know, and others is very, very intriguing. This isn't just someone taking pictures of lights in the sky, posting them online and saying, I'm having an experience. Is there more than something of interest to this than you? What What are your thoughts on the whole Bledsoe story? Yeah, I mean, I, I have sort of a funny story connected with Chris. Uh, for years, you know, even before I'd written my book, uh, my original, the first edition of my book came out in 2000. 16. Um, I'd been speaking to a MUFON field investigator almost two years prior to that about covering a case they'd investigated. And it was very dramatic and it was um, life altering for the, the witness involved. And I went on to publish this story in my book uh, with the witness remaining anonymous because they did not want to be known. They didn't want their name out there. Uh, and then you know, as the years went on, I started presenting that story in lectures that I gave and people started coming up to me and saying, I think I know who that witness is. I, I think I might know who you're talking about. Um, and it took me almost four and a half years for someone to finally come up and say, that's Chris Bledsoe. And I, I had no idea all this time that the anonymous witness I'd been speaking about was actually Chris Bledsoe. And um, that kind of 
to me speaks volumes that when he originally started talking about this, uh, he did not want to be known. He, mm. he didn't want notoriety. And that always, that screams to me um, that this person just wants to get this off their chest. They're, they're not out to be in every documentary or write a million books. Um, finally, Chris has put down everything he possibly could into one cohesive book. And I use the term cohesive, obviously, very loosely, as I'm sure all these experiences are very non-cohesive for Chris. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my my weird connection to this whole story is I've been talking about it for years, not even knowing it was Chris Bledsoe because I hadn't heard his story before. Um, now that this book came out and I've started reading it, it embodies everything I stand for in ufology. This is my ufology. Chris has been dramatically affected by these events, no matter what they are. And um, what Nathan said in terms of interpretation, that's what fascinates me most about all of this, is how each individual interprets these experiences and integrates them into their lives moving forward. I've had so many people come to me and become spiritual or religious after an experience or vice versa. You know, it kind of shatters their their framework of everything they once believed. And now they have to pick the pieces up in a whole new light. And I think Chris has struggled for so many years with all these various phenomena happening to him. And then you mix in CIA, you mix in the military. And it's just like, it, it, again, I, I, I feel for him. I honestly do. Um, I have my own thoughts and opinions on what some of these orbs and stuff might be. However, that doesn't take away from the other various experiences he's had, especially that initial one that kind of put all of this into motion. So for me, um, it really comes down to how did this change Chris Bledsoe's life um, for better and worse? And as I'm reading the book, it, it's just, it's astounding the the journey this guy has been on and, and it's continuing to be written up until today. Um, it's good to see him now finally coming out and putting his face out there and, and, and kind of just telling us what he thinks and feels this all could be not like telling us to believe it. I think that's, what's most important. It's, this is what he thinks is going on. These were the messages that were conveyed to him. And it's up to us as the readers, if we want to accept that or not. And, um, that's what this is all about. All of it. I mean, it's either you embrace it, uh, you deny it, or like many of us, you kind of remain somewhere in between there. And um, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think something definitely happened to this man, um, clearly, for me to publish it in a book not knowing it was him. Um, I, that lends credibility for me, um, especially the investigators that initially uh, looked into his case. Uh that screams volumes of credibility as well. So yeah, that's my long-winded way of saying, read the book, just read it. Like you don't have to believe it, but like it, it is worth your time. It's a very, very interesting story. And um, I can't wait to keep, keep dissecting it. So I got talk. I got talking to someone who I work with the other day about the, the Bledsoe story in the book and and a kind of bastardized version of what had happened to the Chris and the family and, when I mentioned, like, you know, the book coming out, that potentially there's going to be, like, a, a TV deal or movie deal in the works, like Ryan's podcast, they were a little bit suspicious on, well, that just sounds, you know, like money-making and off the back of it, and, you know. But I made the point of, in, in modern day, and I'm not comparing 
I'm going to say this, the, the, the second coming of Christ to the Bledsoe story, right? But I'm going to get to why I'm saying that. In a modern setting, that is the best way to get the, any kind of word or message out there is through different forms of media, you know, podcasts, books, movies, TV. And it made me think, and I ended up bringing up, is it, if you've ever seen or heard of the series The Second Coming, it was a TV series in the late 90s. Dan, I'm sure I've spoke to you about it before. Christopher Eccleston, the Doctor Who, was in it. And it was basically about what if Jesus came back in modern times in the body of this 30-something-year-old normal guy, literally nothing special about him at all. Um, he, and just very quickly, synopsis, he wakes up and like come running across a field not knowing where he's been and basically tells his friends and family, I've I've been away for a few days, I'm I'm Jesus re-embodied. He then puts a, a note out in a newspaper, I think it is. Bear in mind this was the late nineties. It basically says to people, gather at this place and I'm going to perform some kind of miracle. I've just got a feeling, but I don't know what it is. He ends up going to like a football stadium. I'm pretty sure it's Sunderland. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's Sunderland, something like that. And a massive beam of light hits the the pitch and it's then how does the news media break this down and it's you know some say this is genuine some say it's a miracle some say it's some kind of light illusion you know some say it's just a trick um and then it ends up it's a really powerful kind of two or three part series about it turns out no he actually is the second coming of christ and it's how the world deals with it so if anyone wants to go and find it you can get it online in different places it's called the second coming But yeah, it just made me think of, well, what if that did happen these days? How would a spiritual entity reach out and get a message out to the world? Because going back 2000 years, there were no books, no TV series, no podcasts, no social media, you know, no news channels, no newspapers. So wouldn't that be the best way to get those types of messages out there? We, even to go on to like the, the aerial school documentary, for example, I asked Randall Nickerson, do you think the event happened then? for him to make the documentary now to get the word out and maybe the fact that it's been 30 or 40 years since some of these events doesn't actually matter and it's just now the technology is there that we can get the word out so i ended up having that kind of chat and the person wasn't massively into ufos so they were a bit like oh no i'm not sure but i was almost convincing myself that i can see how in a modern setting, a lot of this stuff can be really difficult for folks to take. And I think that goes back to the classic UFO conversation, doesn't it? Of, yeah, what if it's not little green men coming from another planet? And you start to go into different realities, dimensions, physics, and all that kind of good stuff that we like talking about. And it just, the average person who doesn't have an interest in a UFO topic just taps out. They're like, nah, nah, not for me, no more. And that's that's me gone so yeah so that that's what i kind of thought but yeah the second coming well worth a little look if anyone can find that online dan i don't know if you're off the top of your head do you where people can get it but i i think it was bbc if you i i just searched on google and it's in a few places uh it's two episodes so yeah i, I highly recommend people sit down and watch i think it. i think it was itv oh, was it ITV? I, there was adverts yeah um but yeah, so it might be hard to find. But yeah, that's it's definitely worth watching if you can get it. It's probably on YouTube because it's that old now anyway. Um, but well worth a watch, folks. Uh, listen, let's crack on with a question from one of the patrons, uh, Gnosis, long-term listener to the podcast. I'll now read the context to this as well because he always puts a lot of context. He wants us to talk about the elephant in the room 
Arrow. So this was the department the whole community was banking on to get the kind of public-facing investigation we had been craving. Arrow was our big victory, the jewel in the crown that Elizondo, Mellon and co were working towards. But what we now know is that not only has the department been understaffed with just three people, but come crunch time and multiple UAP incidents take place officially in US airspace, there's radio silence from this department and the White House act as if it doesn't exist. We see a congressional call for additional funding for Arrow, but after the disappointment and delays with the last report, it feels Arrow is yet again a token gesture with no clout. My feeling is that disclosure is coming, but it won't be coming via Arrow, and that this department is simply a focus point for Congress to keep this topic alive in the halls of power. Dan, I'll let you kick off with that one. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to repeat the question again, because I was looking for the second coming to give you guys the link. <laughs> you were you were typing away. D- Ryan, <laughs> listen, go with Ryan first. Dan, I'll put sure. the question in there because it, it was a body Thank of it, okay? And you can read that one. And we'll go to Ryan first, okay? Yeah, sure. Um, it's interesting. I know once Biden made that announcement about this interagency opening up, uh, I think it was the war zone the following day came out with their their story, Broken Arrow. Like, where is Arrow in all of this? And uh, it's frustrating that, to learn that this group that a lot of these individuals behind the scenes have been kind of working to uh, to get to get funded, to get established, um, is there, was announced, and then we're not going to be used for the very purpose in which all these events unfolded. Um, <clears throat> I know that, uh, I believe it was Sean Kirkpatrick was present at the classified briefings on these three objects shot down. So it's clear that Arrow is involved. It's not that they just aren't a part of it, but it is, as you know, you mentioned, just a few people. They're still looking for additional funding, as we've seen through Senator Gillibrand and Rubio and this call to get more funding for this thing. Um, and I also heard, too, from... Um, you know, various people who spoke to Arrow that, yeah, they're working on a shoestring budget. It took them almost like four months to get back to me um, about they invited me to come speak with them. And it took them almost four months to finally get back to me. Um, that's how uh, kind of limited their resources are right now. So, yeah, I think what we're seeing right now is the group is established. It's there, um, but it's baby steps. And, you know, what kind? What better way than to uh, kind of what's the the term? Kind of just dive right in, I guess. Here's three unidentified objects that we shot down. Okay, Arrow. Um, we're we're gonna see what you can do with this. So I think what we're seeing is Arrow is involved in everything going on right now. Um, but it's not just them. You know, they're they're getting people from the different various agencies and and whatnot involved too. So yeah. I, I think right now it's kind of um, we're still yet to see what Arrow is capable of. Um, and this is just the beginning. So, um, yeah, I, I look forward to whatever comes out in their next report on what everything going on right now. That's what I'm really looking forward to. You know, the, when the next report comes out, will we finally find out what those three unidentified objects were? Or will they once again say balloon like entities? I, I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not giving up on Arrow just yet. I, I have hope that um, the reason they're there uh, will be put to good use. And, um, yeah, I look forward to whatever happens next with it. 
Yeah, I can feel that disappointment from Notus. I think it reminds me of when a, like, a massive like, football team in the UK have a billionaire owner or company behind them and they say they want a fan group to come on the board and have a representative to, to sit amongst all these multi-millionaires and billionaires to help make decisions for the good of the football club. That person has no real power and they've got that token representative seat to make it feel like the fans are justified and they're represented. And I hope it doesn't become like Gnosis has sort of said. It's just something for Congress to think that they're they're keeping the foot in the door and not letting the door fully close over. Um, so yeah, I'm still on the fence with as, as to what we can see Arrow actually produces. And I, I think I was very fair with Dan in the last breakdown when the report came out that the next report from Arrow is, is a big one in terms of are they going to be any use whatsoever to the general public going forward? Or not to say they won't have their uses in the background, but if it's another nothing burger, as people like to call them, um, I think for many that'll be the kind of arrows kind of serve its purpose and it'll be turning a blind eye to it from, from then on in. Dan, have you had time to read the body of the question? I have. I have. Thank you for giving me that time. I appreciate it. No, that. you're all right. Um, yeah, I, I, nothing burger is an interesting phrase because plenty of people just eat salad burgers, right? Um, we have to remember that the arrow was a repurposing of UAPTF. That was where it started. We're not looking at, like Gnosis called it, the crown jewel. This isn't what it is. This is essentially uh, an organization that came from an arm wrestle between senators and the DOD. The UAPTF was announced to kind of stave off that congressional oversight that people like Gillibrand were were calling for. Um, And Arrow was kind of, it was announced before the new legislation came in. So even when we're looking at, at the report that came out this year that was written by Arrow, it was fulfilling the mandate from last year's NDAA. Um, and for that reason, I'm looking forward to the next one. And I, I know people in the UFO community always say, oh, the next one's going to be the one. Um, but, but I think you're absolutely right in terms of uh, saying that's where we're really going to see the worth of it and to see whether Sean Kirkpatrick is is really wanting to do a great job of, of looking at UAP and helping define it and figure it out or whether it's just wheel spinning from the DOD. Uh, for, for me, it's it's a start. It's not the whole thing. It did start from a gesture from the DOD. The arm wrestle is very present, uh, and you can kind of see these internal factions kind of trying to leapfrog each other to, to control this story. Uh, you know, the, the Air Force is very quiet. The Navy is kind of running forward with this. And now we've got the administration running forward with this because Biden's taken it upon himself to announce the interagency task force off the bat of these balloons. Uh, it, it's really interesting. I, I think the interagency solution would be better just because it allows them to, to pull all the resources properly and do it in a way that isn't colored by the oversight of people like Susan Garth and, and her superiors that you know we, we don't know the names of. Um, the sooner that effort gets started, the better for me. That That is the crown jewel. That's what we want. This should be a worldwide conversation. This week, we've heard that Canada is looking into it. Uh, the UK is still really quiet. Uh, I expect maybe in the next year, they'll, they'll say, oh, yeah, maybe we will pay a little bit of attention here. Uh, but yeah, it's clear that Arrow isn't fit for purpose. Um, but good faith argument, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes forward and, and give them a chance to, to see if they can write that ship. And Nathan on Arrow, performance yeah, review. The- it's the aerophant in the room. Um, yeah, so uh, I've been waiting on that one. I actually appreciate that, Eddie. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think 
you can imagine it was a political, a uh, little bit of a political gamesmanship happening there when this whole balloon debacle took place and the executive, uh, you know, sort of making the decision to implement an executive uh, group, working group to tasking an official group to deal with this. Um, it, it looks better for the executive to have that initiative and have the, you know, kind of we're taking action, we're doing something. And you, you saw this in the rhetoric too. The the politicians were saying, wait, we already had something like it. Why don't we just fund the thing that we've by, on a bipartisan basis already created and let's just build out the framework that we've already had in motion. From the executive perspective, it's like, well, you know, we need the political points here. We need to look strong. We need to look like we have, it, we have uh, our arms around this, that we're in control. And so they're implementing something that, that that sounds like the I think an executive would to do, you know, like that. That's like the classic thing an executive would do. Oh, uh, you know, you've built this awesome thing down in the lower department. Well, I'm going to steal it. And it's my idea now, so we're doing it, and the whole company's on board. And in the lower department, people are like, "We've been talking about this for years." So I think that that's uh, a little bit of what what's happened here. If I could kind of use that as a corporate analogy, it ultimately is a win overall. I think because it is a higher level, higher profile uh, effort here. Uh, I would also, though, I think, you know, ask folks to consider, you know, what is wrapped up in, in, in the entire uh, exercise of disclosure. And this is obviously a huge topic we could you know, go down into here. But, uh, you know, where does it come from? Who should it come from? How is it going to happen? And what what is it really about? What does it really mean? And I think, uh, you know, I take very seriously some of the uh, insight that I've gotten from uh, folks like Frank Milburn, who've talked about this from a, a state level uh, perspective, you know, if, if we're talking about the kind of technology that is literally paradigm shattering and, and game changing, uh, our government, any state government is not going to, you know, show all of its cards uh, right, right away. It would be irresponsible of them to do that. So I think we have to, in some ways, temper our expectations from the state in terms of what they're going to ultimately share with us. Um, I do want the state to take it seriously, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing happen. But I would caution folks to sort of put all of their hope, all their eggs in, in a government disclosure basket, because I don't know that that's really going to happen. And I would also argue that, that maybe that it shouldn't happen that way, that there's something about disclosure, about this phenomena generally, that is, that is not something that is going to uh, come from the top down. In a way, it has to come from the bottom. It has to come from a an individual uh, level and, and permeate, percolate up through the society. And UFO podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. Zencaster is the all-in-one podcasting platform that allows you to remotely record and produce your show with the highest quality audio and video. All from the main dashboard, you can find a full suite of professional tools to get your show created and published in the easiest way possible. You'll always sound at your best as Zencaster's post-production takes the headache out of audio production, setting your loudness and levels while reducing background noise with one click. Zencaster records video up to 
to 4K to give you the perfect picture quality, whether you're in a shed or a studio. Then Zencaster will distribute your video podcast in crisp 1080p to all video podcast players. The biggest feature for me, folks, is that I get the local file recording from each guest so their audio always comes through as best as it can, regardless of any choppy internet connections. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use code UFO podcast and you'll get 40% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story.